Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane here with you on Friday, October the 1st. This week, a themed cancer issue to coincide with the European Society of Medical Oncology meeting taking place in Milan, Italy. And in this week's podcast, we're fortunate enough to hear from two leading experts, one in prostate cancer and another in ovarian cancer. But before that, let me just signpost you to some other key cancer content in this week's issue. It is dated October the 2nd to the 8th. The first thing to say is do read the long editorial talking about the importance of a cancer revolution, summing up how industry and academia need to join forces if the complexities of cancer treatment are really going to be tackled over the coming years. Also, plenty of cancer content in the perspective section, including a lifeline of the man we're about to hear from, Professor Johann Sebastian de Bono, and in a research paper which we're not doing an author interview with, important developments in the treatment of chronic lymphocytic leukaemia. And there is a fascinating health policy paper which I would urge you to read, which looks at cancer but very much from the developing world perspective. But let's now hear from one of the authors of the first research article in this week's issue, Professor Johann Sebastian de Bono from the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. He is lead author of the TROPIC trial, which is looking at a potential new treatment approach for advanced prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is the commonest cancer in men in the Western world and in the UK. In the UK, for example, one man dies of advanced prostate cancer per hour, and this is now the second commonest cause of death from cancer in men in the UK. The treatment of prostate cancer remains essentially currently based on the discoveries by Charles Huggins. Back in the 1940s, Charles Huggins was a Canadian urologist who essentially showed that prostate cancer is dependent on hormones for its growth and that patients benefit from hormonal treatment, but that benefit is limited and doesn't last forever, and eventually the tumors grow despite that treatment. Sadly, since that time, the progress made in treating these patients has been very limited, and this remains really a critically important area of unmet medical need, this being such a common cancer. Perhaps you could just now go on and summarize the current study, and this is looking specifically at men who have had prostate cancer, which has metastasized to other parts of the body. Is that correct? Correct. These are patients who have essentially been treated with every single available drug that we can treat these patients with in our armamentarium. Essentially, these patients were randomized to either cabazitaxel, this novel taxane that has been designed specifically to be active in cancers that are resistant to docetaxel, versus a, an old drug called mitoxantrone that, while it can improve pain and quality of life in these patients, does not unfortunately improve survival. And that was work carried out by Ian Tannock over a decade ago with that drug mitoxantrone, uh, showing that it does improve quality of life but not survival. So this trial compared this new drug versus an old established drug that doesn't improve survival. And overall, the main message of this trial is that this new drug definitely improves survival in these men with very advanced prostate cancer who have a very limited life expectancy, who are really dying of their disease. The implications from the study, do you think we've got enough evidence now that to be really sure that we could change clinical practice by the use of, of this new taxane? We uh, believe that these data have changed clinical practice already in the U.S. with the FDA approving this drug based on these trial data in the summer of this year. So clearly in the U.S. this drug is now standard of care in a second line setting. Whether this will become approved by EMEA, we'll soon find out, probably in early 2011, uh, and the hope is that that will be the case based on these data. We will 
I guess, also have to wait on NICE and their decision on whether to fund this drug in the UK. But these are things that are awaited. Nonetheless, there are still questions that need answered uh, you know, with this drug, particularly with the optimizing dose for each individual patient, uh, which remains a challenge really for all uh, anti-cancer treatments, uh, in fact, based on pharmacogenomics, but also really ensuring that this drug is given safely uh, with minimal toxicity to the patient. And that may involve for example, SNP analysis for pharmacogenomic variables such as CYP3A4, CYP3A5, and ensuring that we, we treat uh, patients that are well uh, and fit. I guess the other issue is that this trial has been conducted in uh, very late-stage patients who are really at the end stage of their disease, and treating patients in the earlier stage setting makes a lot of sense with these agents and will need further evaluation. However, overall, there is still much work to be done in this area to improve the outcome of these patients, and the, uh, the battle continues. Indeed. And a final question, Professor DeBona, you're also profiled in our issue this week. Just one question about that. Just interested to know how you ended up becoming a world's leading authority on prostate cancer medicine. Why, why prostate cancer? When I was working in Texas, in San Antonio, which I was working there for three years, I worked with uh, a number of uh, oncologists and neurologists that had uh, extensive prostate cancer expertise and were you know, leaders in that field. And uh, when I came back to the UK, there was really very few, if any, medical oncologists doing drug development for prostate cancer. And uh, I felt that there was a really critically important unmet need, which... I guess, led me to work in this area. We're very grateful to you. I know you're very busy in the clinic there. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much. The second research article concerns ovarian cancer, specifically when to reintroduce chemotherapy after relapse. Earlier, I spoke to the lead author of the study, Professor Gordon Rustin, who is Director of Medical Oncology at the Mount Vernon Cancer Centre, Northwood, London. Unfortunately, the majority of patients present with advanced disease that spread throughout the abdomen. And despite the best surgery and chemotherapy, about 80% of these patients with advanced disease will relapse at some point uh, after the initial treatment. But the great majority of these relapsed patients will respond to further chemotherapy. So many of these patients will survive for many years. So what's the specific clinical issue that's been addressed by the current study to summarize the outline of, of the study? Now, ovarian cancers, unlike virtually any other cancer, apart from perhaps prostate cancer, where there is a good tumor marker that can detect its recurrence months before it becomes clinically apparent. And the average time between the first elevation of the marker and clinical signs or symptoms of recurrence is about four to six months. But we know some patients, the level can rise a year or two before they actually develop any problems. And there is a very difficult dilemma knowing whether to treat patients because of a rising marker when they are completely well. And if we don't know when, whether we should treat these patients or not. There's also the huge dilemma is whether you should be doing the blood test. And if you do the blood test, do you tell patients when the level goes up? And it was to try and sort out all these real difficult problems that we set up this trial. The methodology of, the, of this trial was that 
patients who went into complete remission after their first-line treatment for ovarian cancer were entered into the trial if they agreed, and then had CA125 measurements every three months. But the crucial thing was these uh, blood tests, the results were sent just to the Medical Research Council or, or the ORTC trials office, and they were completely blinded from the patients and the clinicians involved. The patients continued to have these blood tests, and if the levels rose to twice the upper limit of normal, they were then randomized. Half of the patients were randomized in the what we call the early arm to being the patient and the doctor being told, and they were asked to start restart chemotherapy within a month. And the other half were randomized to not be told, so nobody knew the blood results, and they continued the standard follow-up and were treated when they developed signs or symptoms of recurrence. There were 1,442 patients entered into the trial, and there were a total of 529 randomized to either early or delayed treatment. And we found that the ones who were in the early arm restarted chemotherapy on average 4.8 months earlier than those in the delayed arm. But despite starting chemotherapy earlier, they did not live any longer. There was identical survival between the early and the delayed arm. And furthermore, many of the patients went on to get third-line treatment for another relapse, and those on the early arm received their next line of treatment 4.6 months earlier than those in the delayed arm, so they didn't even get any longer remission. We also did quality of life analysis and found that those in the early arm had an earlier deterioration in their global health score and certain factors in quality of life were worse in that group. This actually grossly underestimates the deterioration of quality of life because obviously they also had all the toxicity from earlier chemotherapy. So there's a very clear results of this trial. It's a counterintuitive result. It's, people will be surprised about it. But I think there's some very positive aspects to the result. First of all, women can be reassured that they don't have to rush back into chemotherapy just because they've got a rising blood test. And women can also be advised that perhaps if they're completely well, they don't need to do the blood test at all. And this is now what I recommend to my patients. And this is greatly reducing the amount of anxiety because there's almost a condition called CA125 psychosis that we see with people worrying about what their next blood level is. So many patients now are not having the blood test, but obviously some will want to have it done so they can plan their lives. And obviously part of clinical trials, we often, often need to do it. So we, we get the end point from measuring CA125 as well as scans and other, other things. Obviously, what we need are better treatments. Important to realize that once somebody relapses with ovarian cancer, it's almost impossible to cure them. We can treat them and often keep them alive for some years, but we can't cure them. Now, if we had new treatments that actually started curing some of these patients, then we'd obviously want to give it as quickly as possible. As things stand at the moment, this trial shows that it is safe 
to delay treatment until patients have signs or symptoms. And it ends up, in fact, that doing it this way, patients get less chemotherapy during their life, yet live just as long, which has huge ramifications for quality of life and cost. Well, many thanks to both authors for the interviews this week and to you all for listening. See you next time.